Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, I'd encourage you to go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme this morning on what is a cool, cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Nicholas Stone. Nick is the Director of Operations at SHA Disability Consultancy, the leading expert in the fields of mobility, OT and DFG assessments and CCG CHC working. Um, Nick, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Hello, Scott. Good morning. Good morning, Nick. It's uh, maybe not the nicest uh, day for it, but probably a good job that we're all inside where it's um, a little bit warmer. Um, Normally, at this point in the show, we tend to dive into the subject of leadership. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we approach the subject matter from that angle to begin with. Because for so many Mm. leaders within all walks of life, it's proven to be such a significant Mm. challenge. But for yourselves Mm. at Mm. SHA, of course, to what extent has it affected you and your operations? Well, I mean, overnight, um, contracts, quite large contracts were suspended. People, I think, were in shock generally throughout the country. So we had to uh, regroup really and consider how best we could weather the storm and how then we could find a way through the immediate impact on our cash flow um, and keeping people in work because those were the two main areas that we were impacted on literally overnight. Mm. Um, so we um, have a small management group and normally we meet probably once a month. I mean, more informally, team leaders meet um, on a more regular basis. Um, but we meet, I meet with my my management team once a month. So we were meeting every day pretty much mm. um, for the first couple of weeks, just trying to work out a strategy to find a way through it. Um, and I think for me, um, what I learned early on was that um, the impact was a human one, very much a human one as well as on my business. Mm. So, you know, it was very important for me to acknowledge that impact on myself because it was very stressful, um, but also on, on the people involved in my business, the other staff. So everyone has their own life, their own circumstance, um, childcare, looking after parents or caring for people, needing to pay the mortgage. Um, every every individual has a different circumstance. So, you know, I got to know everyone much more than perhaps I would have done before. Um, and we know each other quite well, but we have new people coming in all the time. So I think it was really important to make that acknowledgement. So um, one of the reasons to meet very frequently early on was so that um, – I could, or we could support one another on a human level. Mm. Um, so we'd always say, how are you today? You know, um, and acknowledge that people might have felt depressed or down um, or whatever, you know, and just, just um, have time to talk that through a bit before we went on to the operational stuff, which obviously was also important. Mm. And um, one of the things I did was I thought, well, it's important to reach out to our clients, our portfolio, and ask them um, 
if we could support them in any way. So it was a mutual kind of like, if you like, a virtual one, mm. obviously. Um, but where we had contracts suspended, we were saying, is there any way we can do this differently? Really early on, we were saying, you know, can we do things virtually? Can we um, help you by offering our uh, staff, perhaps with a high level or a different skill set, to work with you so you can target the people that you need to be assessed um, as a more of a priority. And there's a whole PPE issue, getting um, uh, COVID uh, protocol um, published for us and working with clients to find out what they were doing. People were swimming in a sea of unknown, really, unknown. So um, it was very much reaching out um, within and outside of an organization to help us find a very clear plan to work through. Um, we were lucky in, in, in the respect that um, we had built up uh, a fairly substantial reserve. I'm quite a prudent person. Mm. I can blame that on my mother. <laughs> <laughs> I've never borrowed any money in my life. So, um, you know, we had built up a reserve. So we used that to subsidize our own sort of furlough. Um, we put one or two senior staff whose contracts had been suspended on project work. So these are things that have been on a back burner for quite a while, um, like reviewing our own internal staff uh, manual, for example, um, and looking at training and, and marketing um, databases, updating those contacts. So we, we I took a salary cut, and I used that money to fund um, a couple of other projects. I stopped my company pension payments, just we started them, you'd be pleased to know, because we've actually done quite well. Um, but we also met with our auditor and company accountant um, much, much more frequently. So normally we have monthly management accounts, but we met with our accountant, you know, first of all, every couple of weeks. And then we just now put it back now to a couple of months again um, to, to, to ride out the storm. So... Um, I don't know if that answers your question. Immediately, it was a crisis for us, as it was for many. But I think it's really important to stress the human um, aspect of all of this, people's lives. Um, so people in my business are people first, and it's the people that make the business and make the business work. And it's really, we're like a family. We're not a, a global international company. Mm. Um, we're relatively small in, the, in that scale, but we are successful and actually, we've ridden a storm, and we've we've we're bringing in new business now. Actually, mainly through this virtual approach, trying to encourage people. Actually, there are um, some advantages from COVID because mm. you no longer have, um, if you do virtual uh, assessments, um, where these are possible. They're not always possible, but where these are possible, um, and you've minimised the risk, um, you can save on on costs for um, uh, premises, for example, and travel. And we've found also some of our mobility clinics where we assess for um, things like blue badges, freedom passes, disabled parking bays, that sort of thing. But um, there's a higher uptake. There's less no-shows because people don't have to uh, think about it. You know, the, most, mm -hmm. of, most of us have been at home much more than we've been out. So. Um, it's had on uh, had a, a positive effect as well on business. So initially, it it dipped um, in terms of contracts being completely suspended. People were 
saying, oh, God, you know, we can't go out. I had staff who wanted and needed to work. I had staff who um, didn't feel comfortable about traveling on public transport, for example, to work because they may have had a vulnerable partner or family member. And then we had staff who, who, who wanted to, to work but had childcare issues and they couldn't get childcare. So all of those things I had to take into account in order to regroup and then uh, keep the relationship going. So after a few weeks, we, um, we managed to, um, I approached all the clients with a, an email saying, the government has said, and we found a directive from government, which was very helpful actually, um, do not set adrift your providers, your independent providers. So I made a personal email attached to that, that um, reference and asked for credit up front on accounts. Mm. And surprisingly, um, a significant number of our clients have paid us up front on account, which really helped um, in terms of, you know, the worry about cash flow. Mm. Um, so not that we needed to use it actually at the end of the day. But um, anyway, I hope that gives you a flavour. Certainly does. A very, very comprehensive idea of what's been going on behind the scenes. And it is often mm-hmm. said, isn't it, that you do learn an awful more about yourself and those around you in a time of adversity than when things are going mm-hmm. well. And it certainly seems to have proven the case in the way that everybody's applied themselves to sort of come up with these uh, solutions. Yeah, yeah. And with regards to sort of the uh, the remote side of things, uh, Nick, to what extent um, have you sort of been engaged in that or has it largely been sort of business as usual for yourself going into the office every day? Yeah, well, again, you know, um, we, um, we have been mostly seeing um, service users. Most of our clientele are local authority, mm-hmm. social care, uh, services and health care trusts. And we go in as experts to assess people's needs based on some kind of disability to access a range of services. So that could be, for example, um, um, patient transport services. So we've been working with a, a very big London trust um, for about two years looking at um, whether people need uh, transport to and from, for example, outpatient dialysis and things like that. Um, quite controversial, a bit scary to start with, but it worked very well after a pilot. But because um, of COVID, the tr- that trust took um, the very um, correct and sensible decision um, to just waiver um, ass- assessment because of the risk to potentially vulnerable people um, on public transport. So that's still suspended, that big t- the contract. But we did uh, then manage to work up... Um, uh, adapting our existing assessment tools that we use in mobility clinics, which are normally face-to-face. People come in, they have a slot, um, a therapist, an OT or a physiotherapist will see them, physically see them walk and ask them a number of questions and score them on a matrix. Um, And we have like a threshold pass-fail, which we agree with the client in advance. Um, we We adapted the tool that we use and we now run those successfully with um, most of our um, existing mobility service clients, and it runs very well. Um, in fact, we've expanded some clinics in, with some clients, so that's gone very well. We're also looking at doing things like um, personalized parking bays, so we've just started mm-hmm. two new projects with uh, existing clients, but it's new work, 
um, looking at um, disabled parking bays and doing that all virtually using Google Maps as well to look at sites rather than physically go on site. But of course, um, there still will be people that do need to be seen face-to-face or service users who may not have access to the internet or um, you know they can't uh, communicate effectively by phone um, or video call. So we still um, do uh, run face-to-face assessment services. So we have um, always throughout the pandemic um, still done face-to-face with risk ass- infection control, risk assessment, and PPE um, as well. So it's just that they're, they're, they're gradually built back up again. They're not to what they were before, but we found there are actually cost savings and, and benefits all around in terms of quality, um, target hit rates for clients and service users um, by doing things virtually. So it's, it's, it's made, made everyone think, well, hang on, is this the best way of delivery? And actually, we found out that quite often a virtual way is more effective mm. or just as effective and more cost effective. So, yeah. I think you're very right in saying that some of the solutions that have come about um, during the lockdown period and beyond could well become a permanent fixture in the way that we do business in this country because um it has certainly benefits for um not just safety but also the work-life balance also sustainability as well as a very big argument Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. with all of that actually in mind uh, nick from your point of view can you ever see us actually reverting back to the conventional workplace office environment in vogue even when covid is no longer an issue or do you think that this is the future now that we're in I think that um, I think that people probably will take stock as a business person. Do you really need the overhead of an office and, and, and office space for many staff? I mean, we we have always operated pretty virtually anyway. I think we came into the um, pandemic very well prepared mm. in a strange way because most of our staff. Um, work remotely anyway. Um, we have an office hub in Chelmsford, so they coordinate databases and, and they have an answer phone says we can meet there if we want. But, you know, we use the IOD, the Institute of Directors, for meetings, or we go to clients on site. So we've never really had the need for a prestigious building. Um, we've, 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 we've always um, gone ahead with, like, an, an intranet early on, um, so we communicate electronically primarily. Um, um, so, um, you know, we obviated the need for those sorts of um, physical spaces quite a long time ago. Um, and I think that um, people are, you know, I mean, hot desking became the topic, didn't it, um, a few years ago. Mm. Um, but I think in the way this shows that, you know, with technology being cheaper and more available and you can link it up securely to transfer data securely, that's very important, um, that people can work pretty much remotely from anywhere. And um, where we have to actually physically um, go to site to see or assess a person or have a meeting, that's fine, but it's certainly not all the time. Um, so, yes, I think it will um, bring a sea change. It's already doing that. For us, it certainly has. It's made us very much more uh, t- tightly control um, those sorts of overhead costs to our own benefit. 
Mm. It is something which business leaders are certainly going to be looking at and weighing up over the next few months, of course. Do they really need that pin in the map as such? And can they jettison their physical premises and Mm. keep things remotely just to keep costs down and sort of keep more sustainable i suppose so it will be interesting certainly to uh, gauge what exactly does come of that over the uh, the next few months what i would say um scott is that there is this there is a really really important thing here that sometimes is missed and that's the social aspect to work mm. so uh, and routine so um you know in the past when we've had crisis in our in my business we've had like people staff members get to very badly divorced We've had um, severe illness, uh, bereavement. Um, I don't know, you know, other crises. Um, you find that um, the best advice is, you know, routine, mundane things help, and having that contact of a, a, a work peer group is so important. And however, however you maintain it, that should be uh, not lost. You need to have a space, even if it's a virtual space, and we certainly do that. As mentioned before, particularly in times of crisis where people can come together, they feel safe and and they can talk, you know, or even gossip and laugh. It's very important. And I think that's that's, that's really as important. It shouldn't be missed. We're not robots. There is a need for human contact. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And even if you can do that just virtually, um, it's a real uh, key part of any successful business. We do seem to have really taken that for granted pre-pandemic, don't we? The human social contact. And now that we've sort of had to contend with the social isolation element of lockdown, we do realise just how important that is. And that is a major consideration when it comes to the remote working side of things. Can you replicate that contact effectively remotely all of the time? Sometimes it does work. Maybe sometimes it isn't quite as effective. So that is certainly something very important to, uh, to weigh up. We talked about it a little bit already, just because you mentioned, of course, recognition the business on a human level before sort of thinking about mm. how you tackle the pandemic. But on the whole, Nick, mm. just how important do you think that mental health is in leadership as a whole? Oh, it's really critical. I mean, you really have to know yourself. You have to acknowledge you might be having a down day, you might be having a very good day. But um, if you're preaching to some people in your team who are really suffering for whatever reason emotionally, and you, you're not aware, and you don't, then you don't acknowledge that, then you're in for trouble, really, because you lose respect um, of people. And um, as I said before, we're very much like a family group. Um, we know each other quite well. Uh, there is a line, obviously, between the private and the and the public professional personas, but um, I think we all, um, everyone's got strengths and weaknesses. Everyone's circumstances are different say, family situations, financial, et cetera. So it's really important to um, give time and the space for people to just sit or just listen. There's not always an easy answer or any answer, but it's really to acknowledge, um, as you say, people's mental health status is is really key. Uh, You can't brush it aside. But, you know, quite often, you know, you will, you know, what I find is you can, uh, it's important to, um, to um, uh, promote somebody's um, particular strengths or experiences, so you can help as an employer um, by by doing that by perhaps giving them um, something to do in their own time, take off some pressure, uh, or giving somebody something more routine to do just to keep 
keep everything ticking over and not to not, not be too taxing. I don't know if that's really answered your question. But <laughs> very comprehensive I response, I have to say, because it is important. It's very important in leadership um, to safeguard not just, of course, the mental health of those around you, but also your own as mm. well, for sure. Because I think even in the everyday world where you're sort of sucked into the hectic world of running a business or running an organisation, let alone during a crisis such as COVID, it can be easy to sort of forget to look after yourself sometimes um, as well. And that's something that is very, very important just to take a step back when you need to and not necessarily switch off, but just take some time out absolutely yeah no i mean i'm very um very strict about that with myself and with with staff as well um yeah it's very important as i say we're not robots we're human mm. beings it's exactly right and we're not robots at all we are human beings and we're not infallible either so a big part of that as well is that when mistakes inevitably come along which is something that is likely to happen during a crisis then it's also about just being willing to learn from them rather than having sort of a blame culture in place be that self-blame or blaming somebody else yeah i mean that's part of human humanity we we are fallible sometimes we like to think we're not but we are fallible me included so yeah we all can help we all should be able to hold up our hand and not be ashamed occasionally mistakes happen but that's the part of uh, the human condition. So I don't, uh, sometimes you get it annoyed <laughs> with oneself or other people, but then that's how it is. Usually I try and look at it actually from a sort of Buddhist perspective, to be honest, um, Buddhism, bringing Buddhism into business. There you go. <laughs> There's absolutely it's, uh, nothing being mindful. Mm. It's being mindful, you know, um, change is the only certainty. So if you, if you take it from that stance, um, I don't think you can go far wrong. And yes, and just thinking now about the uh, the next twelve months, Ernie. Just because mm. I'm conscious that we're beginning to run short of time, um, mm-hmm. we know that in terms of planning for the future, we can't really look too far ahead because the day the 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 years and the months have now been reduced to days and weeks that we can plan for just because of the nature of changing guidelines and changing circumstances. But um, mm. if we could sort of pretend we have a crystal ball for a moment and maybe look 12 months ahead, um, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at SHA over the next year? And where do you really want yourselves to be this time in 12 months with everything that is going on? Mm. Well, this year is our 25th anniversary as a business. Um, so we were planning all sorts of face-to-face celebration and, uh, you know, going to uh, conferences <laughs> uh, and exhibition stands, but of course, none of that's possible. So what we've tried to do is go ahead with a virtual away day, which is coming up on the 7th of November, um, and um, everyone will get a goodie bag. <laughs> so... Um, you know, that's a way of bringing people together. Um, I hope that we will be able to um, build on some of these virtual um, methodologies to bring in new business. And actually, we've already started to do that. As I say, two new contracts have come in. Um, I think um, I'm actually quite excited by the potential opportunities of working differently. Um, we, we're also having a recruitment uh, day coming up virtually um, and if you look at something like a recruitment day where physically people used to come in and used to wait and used to see them and you talk about them make notes now you know you can do it on zoom or google meets and it's much more easy to manage and cheaper um, so i think that um, 
in a year's time, um, hopefully we can meet up more. <laughs> um, hopefully uh, we will have uh, more stability because the one fear is, I suppose, is, is, is a, you know, the pandemic we're, in my opinion, probably about a third of the way only through this. And um, it's variable across different regions. So you kind of think, well, um, it might, it's going to impact um, differently on different clients and different contracts and income streams uh, for, for my business and all businesses really, depending on what happens in different geographic locations with lockdown or restrictions. So um, with the vaccine as well, um, hopefully that will make it easier um, and less of a, a fear for vulnerable people because m most of our service users are in that category. They, they've been people that may have been shielding. Um, so, you know, um, hopefully a vaccine um, will give us some hope to be able to um, to look at um, taking away some of the fear that people still feel about um you know, being seen or visiting. Um, it's going to be a yeah, very... I don't know what else to say, really. I think, <laughs> I, I, think, Nick, it's, um... I think you have to take it step by step. We're by no means over this. Um, mm. And um, it's not early. It's still very early days. So we, we, when we meet, we look at it as being, you know, well, you know, things could be suspended again. Who knows? So we have to be very careful about cash flow, about our spend. Um, but I think we are now looking to, to, to much more brighter days ahead. And they will come because we know the certainty is change and it's not always negative change. And we, as I said, I've tried to highlight, we found a, quite a few positives out of all this, really. Um, and it's bound us together as a team, as a management team and as a group. Um, very, very much more than it probably we would have been bound together before. Mm. It has really brought a sense of unity during this time, hasn't it? A recognition that everybody's in the same boat, everybody's had to pull together. And the way that it's galvanised business in particular and industry as a whole, that is very, very positive. And it is something that I hope we can certainly sort of keep hold of that spirit as we go forward into the uh, the future. And what is going to be an uncertain time, but it doesn't mean, as, you, as like you said there, that all the change that's going to come is going to be uh, negative. We are just about out of time on the programme uh, today, Nick, but I've got to say it's been a real pleasure welcoming you on this morning. And um, it's a shame we don't have more time because I'm sure we could discuss this issue long into the afternoon. <laughs> but um, you're very right. Yeah. I do think we should be looking at the future with a very positive sort of mindset because that positivity is very much infectious and we could all use a dose of that just to increase the morale during this time. And I actually think yeah. just as we start to get a better idea over the next few months as to the way things are panning out, that it would be great to welcome you back onto the show just to see exactly Exactly what has changed yeah pleasure i'd be very well uh, very welcome very much welcome that that'd be great yeah absolutely mm, yeah, thank you for having well. me on i've enjoyed it yeah it's good i hope um people get some inspiration um and solidarity from listening I certainly hope so as well. It's very much what we're all about, getting the the many voices of British industry out into the national sphere so that we can all indeed learn from each other and also just seek some yeah. reassurance during this time as well. Um, I've got I'm very to much welcome if yes. people want to get in touch through the website as well, you know, if, if, if they want to share thoughts, ideas or mm. um, find out what, how we've been managing, they're very welcome to contact me or us through, through the website. They very much welcome that. 
Absolutely. And um, I would certainly most encourage that as well. And um, also, Nick, uh, just before we do uh, wrap things up now, um, please do take care and stay safe with all that is still going on in the world. And um, that goes for everybody involved with SHA as well. And that I'd extend Thank that. Thank you, as- Scott. And you too, and yourselves, yes. Yes, I'd extend that, of course, to all of the uh, the listeners that are tuning into this morning's programme as well. Please do continue to stay well and look after yourselves and do be considerate of others because that does make a key, key difference in saving lives during this time. Um, for me, it was a pleasure to welcome Nicholas Stone, Director of Operations at SHA Disability Consultancy, onto today's programme. Um, next up on the show today, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save 
the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce, and I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's Uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more 
seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary, often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. 
So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up 
uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges, and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. 
I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent, a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, 
led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sakir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's 
major challenge is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.